Father, we are so grateful that we had this time to come together as believers to study your word, to reflect upon what you have revealed to us and to probe its meaning and its depth that we might come to understand more fully who you are and as a consequence who we are since we are created in your image and likeness. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these closing chapters in Romans as we wrap up our study and that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us areas where we need to apply your word in our lives. May we be strengthened and encouraged tonight in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, and this is really driving this section we're in, which goes from verse 7 down through verse 13. We just covered verse 7 last time. Is really driving towards that final verse in verse 13. So he's looking at these spiritual goals, which is really stated in the form of a benediction uh, at the end of this section, which really does close out the main body of Romans. But then we go into the conclusion, and there will be a, some, a number of key things that we learn in the last part of chapter 15 as well as into chapter 16. And I'm looking forward to getting into chapter 16 because even though we tend to read chapters like that and see a lot of names, uh, greetings to various people, in various uh, situations, and we don't know who they are. We'll get a chance to find out who they are and why God the Holy Spirit has preserved the, this information for us down through the centuries. So this will be a, a, a good study. When we wrap up with Romans, which should be in the next five or six weeks, probably before we go to Israel, we'll start a new study on Thursday night, which will be in First and Second Samuel, and I've been working on this. I taught this last about thirty years ago. It's one of that's one of those sets that I'm glad that doesn't uh, surface anymore. Everybody has those, but it was a great study, and I've always enjoyed First uh, Samuel. There's a lot of important. Uh, especially uh, important application, especially relevant to today because like today, it was a world of chaos. It was a world of cultural collapse, a world dominated by cultural relativism where it begins in the period of the judges when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, which is a uh, applicable commentary for our culture today. So it is a tremendous chapter. Their solution is a political solution, but it's a wrong political solution, and that's a dire warning for most of us. And so there's a lot of very good stuff there, as well as a lot of important personal uh, principles for personal application. Okay, 15.7, we looked at this last time. Paul begins this, this last paragraph in the body of the epistle with the conclusion, Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also has received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now there's a couple of things that we ought to pay attention to just in terms of a flyover. One of the most important things that you can develop as a skill in your Christian life is to study the Bible on your own. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to drill down like a pastor is going to drill down or maybe even as much as a Sunday school teacher is going to be able to drill down, but so that as you're going about your daily reading of Scripture, and everybody should be reading the Bible on a, on a daily basis, you ought to pick out three to five chapters to read. It doesn't take that long. If you spend about 15 minutes a day reading through the Bible, then you can read through the Bible in a year without any any trouble. 
And uh, as we do that, questions are going to come up. Now, there are some questions that you, you say, well, I, I'm, I'm just really confused about that. Well, that's great. We all are that way. I mean, I, every time I read through a book of the Bible, I, I'll circle things and put a question mark next to it so that next time I come back and have some time to study it, I'll spend some time drilling down, and I just pass over it, set it aside, and keep reading. One of the reasons we read is just for content, just for information, just to know the the scope of the Bible, just to understand uh, who's who and what's what and where's where and to understand those things. It's also helpful if you have a study Bible. If you have a good set of maps in the back of the study Bible, then in, especially when you're reading through Old Testament things, you can stop and look and, and, and follow the progression of events. But as you just read, you ought to pay attention to, to key words and to certain things that are said and certain structural things. And one of the things that we note in this uh, that's really obvious in the structure of this particular paragraph from verse 7 to verse 13 would be what? What sort of stands out? Well, one of the first things you should notice is that there are four quotations from the Old Testament. And any time we see a, a quote from the Old Testament, that ought to raise our attention just a little bit and say, well, well, how in the world is the writer of the New Testament using that? What's going on here? Is this a fulfillment of prophecy? We've gone through the, those four different uses in detail of how the Old Testament's used in the New Testament. Sometimes it's a direct prophecy, remember. You have passages like uh, Micah 5.2 that predicts the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And that passage is, is directly quoted by the religious leaders that Herod consults when the Magi, the wise men, came to uh, Herod asking where the Messiah was born, where the king of the Jews was born. And so he called his uh, advisors in, the religious leaders, and says, well, what does the Scripture say? And they quote Micah 5.2. That's a direct prophecy. Then you have other prophecies. that Other times that the Old Testament quotes, I mean, excuse me, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, and it's a little more obscure. And, for example, you have passages like Hosea 11.1 1, that's quoted also in Matthew chapter 2, and that quotes the, 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 the sentence that says, Out of Egypt I called my son. But when you dig down a little bit, you realize that, that that's not talking about prophecy at all. That was simply a statement that described a historical event that, Israel had come out of Egypt, but there's a little more to it than that, as we saw the last time we studied that, and that there is a prediction in in the um, in the visions uh, that uh, um, are given by Balaam in Numbers chapter 23 and 24 that connect that verbiage specifically to the Messiah, and that that just as Israel came out of of Egypt in the third or in the second vision there for Balaam, so the Messiah, the king mentioned in the in the third vision, would also come out of Egypt. So so when Matthew uses Hosea eleven one, he's not just pulling a phrase out of the Old Testament somewhere. He's he's using a phrase and and a specific issue that is identified by Old Testament writers as a as a type, as an example of something that would apply to the Messiah. So that was the second use that we looked at. The third use that we looked at was that that sometimes there's a parallel. There are certain similarities between an Old Testament event or a prophecy or a statement even, and this is picked up by a writer of the New Testament, and he's simply applying a principle. Usually there's only one point of commonality between the Old Testament uh, verse in its original context and the way it's used in the New Testament. So it's, we call that just an application. And then there's a third use where sometimes the writer of Scripture says, well, this is what the Old Testament said, and it sort of summarizes something in, in one sentence that's said in the Old Testament in various different ways. There's not a specific sentence. It's sort of a summary. So if you remember that, then when you look at this, you ought to think, oh, well, let me go back and read these in their original context and understand what is being said in the original context to the original audience, and then why is why is Paul quoting them? 
And so we look at that and we see there's a, there's a progression there. And if you just stop and look at verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, there's one word that is common to all of those verses. And you ought to be able to look at that and pick it out. It's the word Gentiles. And that's why Paul is going back and he's quoting from those verses. So there's, he's, he's keying in on that word Gentiles. And then a third thing we ought to observe right away that's, that's pretty obvious is that as he comes to the, the, the conclusion of this and builds to his final benediction in verse 13, it plays off, the, the benediction plays off of the last phrase in verse 12. And this gives us a key to really understanding the, the, the major doctrine that he's trying to communicate in this last section. It closes with that quote from, uh, from Isaiah, in him the Gentiles shall hope that our hope is in Christ. But then if you look at verse 13, we see that the word hope is used two more times. The God of hope in the first line, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of God the Holy Spirit. So we see that hope is a key thing. So this is what we uh, emphasize when we go through a passage asking the question, well, what does the passage say? What is the writer of Scripture uh, trying to communicate to us? You don't just go into the Bible and read into the Bible things that, that, that you would like to see there. You don't just sort of cherry pick key things that are there, but we want to read things that are in context and understand the background and understand uh, the structure that's there so that we can actually dig into the mind and the thinking of the Apostle Paul writing this under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. So as we looked at this last time, spent a lot of time on verse verse 7, just a re- re- reminder, he draws a conclusion. He says, therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us. So we are commanded to accept in terms of fellowship. That's what that word means, proslambano. It means to accept one, someone into your fellowship. We're to accept one just as Christ did. So Christ, I pointed out last time, is the pattern. This is, uh, he is the one who gives us a pattern of grace and understanding uh, what uh, genuine love is all about. And then uh, I pointed out as we looked at this uh, that we're to receive one another just as Christ received us to the glory of God. And that phrase, glory of God, actually threw us back to the last two verses in the previous paragraph which talked about the fact that we were, in verse 6, that we were with one mind and one mouth to glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the emphasis there was on uh, unity in the church and understanding uh, this whole concept. So let me just summarize a couple of things related to what the Bible teaches about the unity among the body of Christ. Uh, it's sad that there's so much division. I went through a little uh, review last week of his history showing how since the Protestant Reformation there have become numerous uh, splits and divisions and the rise of different denominations, and sometimes uh, there was a rise in development of certain denominations simply because coming out of the Protestant Reformation some of these groups uh, had a state church orientation back in the old country. So you had Swedish Lutherans and Norwegian Lutherans and Danish Lutherans and uh, German Lutherans and Swiss Lutherans. And when they came to the United States, they maintained those those sort of historic uh, alliances, and they didn't really u- unite together very much. So that's one reason you have some of those divisions. And then another reason that we saw in the United States was because there was a rise of of, of heresy at times and disagreement over doctrine, but in, in, in the best case scenarios, just the rise and development of, of heresy, especially in the 19th century with, with what was called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. So the thing that we have to understand is, is this whole concept of unity. And when we look at the history, what we see is a reaction set in among conservative Bible believing Christians in the in the early part of the 20th century where they 
cast great suspicion upon anything that was associated with denominationalism. And as a result, you see some people who operate on fear, and they think that any time a Christian from one church does anything with a believer from another church, that that smacks of denominationalism. And they don't understand unity, and that has nothing to do with denominationalism or ecumenicalism, because if two Christians go to different churches and part of different congregations, and they are supportive of something like uh, Camparete or uh, Chafer Seminary or Dallas Theological Seminary, these are, are different missionaries, then these are very positive things, and believers should be uh, cooperating there. So we stand in terms of our position in Christ in unity. So the first point is that the basis for Christian unity is the baptism by God the Holy Spirit who has entered all of us at the point of salvation into Christ. So we have an organic supernatural unity as members of the body of Christ. And so this is the established reality in terms of our ultimate position in Christ. The problem is that we, 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 we have problems. We have sin natures. We get, uh, we don't understand scripture correctly and so we get crossways with each other. We all think that my, what my understanding is right and yours isn't. We give in to arrogance and this creates division. So the reality is that some Christians due to carnality, create and cause divisions. Uh, we see a couple of passages that reference this, for example, in Romans sixteen seventeen, which is going to be coming up in the very next chapter, where Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses. Even in the early church, there were people who created uh, schisms in churches. They caused problems in churches. Now, that may surprise a lot of, lot of uh, Christians because I've heard this m- my whole life. Wouldn't it be nice to go back and just be simple like the early church? And, and my response to that is no. They didn't un- really understand the Scripture very well. Uh, they had a, just as many co- problems as we do today because the sin nature is the same. And as a result of that, we have a much better understanding of Scripture today than they did in the early church. Now, I'm not saying we had a better understanding than the apostles, but we had a better understanding than the average believer because they didn't have a completed canon of Scripture. They uh, didn't have a lot of things that we have. They really didn't understand concepts like the Trinity or the hypostatic union. They understood them in a sort of elementary, primitive way, uh, sort of like a three-year-old looks at his parents and says, I love you. He has a, a, a very elementary, childish understanding of love, but he doesn't have a mature understanding of love. It wasn't until you get into the third and fourth century that you had vocabularies such as Trinity, hypostatic union, uh, terms like this that, that could, could help people uh, comprehend those, those kinds of doctrines. So the early church was a mess. It was not some sort of ideal situation, and there were a lot of divisions. And so Paul says to the Romans, he says, you need to pay attention who the troublemakers are in the congregation, who the people are that, that go off on uh, wild goose chases, who the people are who don't pay attention to the uh, uh, leadership of the pastor, the leadership of the uh, of, of the leaders in the church and who go their own way. And I've been in congregations in the past where you'll get somebody who, as a result of reading some book or studying something, gets, gets into some strange notion about, uh, about prophecy or they get off onto some strange uh, thing about the person and work of Christ or all of a sudden they, they get extremely Calvinistic or extremely Arminian. They get messed up on eternal security or they get messed up on the gospel. There's a lot of different things. Next thing you know, they want to teach Sunday school and they're back there teaching their, their uh, brand new understanding of the word to somebody else. And you have to understand that in a local church like this, there are always going to be some people in the congregation, some people who teach in Sunday school, some people who are leaders 
who may not agree 100% with what the pastor teaches. And that may be for a number of reasons, and usually it's because uh, they haven't had enough time to really study and understand the issues like the pastor has. And that's fine. I've, I've been in churches. I've been on staff at churches where I didn't agree 100% with the pastor. In fact, I would be surprised if there was anybody in this congregation who agreed 100% with me. Um, that's just that's just the reality of life. Gene raised his hand back there. Are you raising your hand because you agree or you don't agree? Or because you're the troublemaker? <laughs> Both. Okay, yes, we know Gene. He's the troublemaker. Uh, anyhow, so, so th- that's, the, that's the reality. But what we do is we have, a, we have a set body of teaching and a philosophy of ministry that is handed down and agreed to by the leadership of the church and the leadership of the pastor, and everybody follows that. That's how you keep things in order and you do things in an orderly manner. And I've been in congregations where I didn't agree 100% with uh, the things that the pastor did, but you keep your mouth shut and you go along with it. I did my pastoral internship in a Southern Baptist church in Irving, Texas, where the pastor didn't even believe in the infallibility or inerrancy of Scripture. I had a good lesson in humility and authority orientation. And that's what that's all about. You have to understand that. So you don't go about telling everybody, well, I disagree with him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't like that. And you create divisions and offenses. And so Paul says, pay attention to those people because they're nothing but troublemakers and they, they can really create trauma in a congregation. And then in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, Paul says, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. In other words, that you all be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you. Now, this isn't talking about the ultimate reality of one faith that Paul talked about in Ephesians 4, which is a positional reality in terms of our union in Christ. This is talking about an experiential reality. Quit focusing on non-essentials or things that create controversy and focus on unity. So Paul said, but it's not unity at the expense of doctrine. That's ecumenicalism. Ecumenicalism says, if we're going to disagree on something, then it's not important. Let's just get rid of it and water everything down until we get to the point that we can agree on everything because we really don't believe in anything. That's ecumenicalism. So, Paul says that he pled with them, and remember the Corinthians were very divided. They had all kinds of factions and all kinds of problems, as we'll see in the in the next next couple of verses. But he said, be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Note that phrase, same mind and same judgment. That has to do with submission to the authority of God and being in agreement on the basis of the Word of God. We'll see it come up again in Philippians chapter 2 in just a second. Now, divisiveness and schism is always a manifestation of carnality. These words that we'll see that are translated division and, and, and strife and heresy are words that show up in Galatians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, that talk about the works of the flesh, the works of the sin nature. And so that's always present in passages that describe people that are living on the basis of their sin nature. Arrogance and self-absorption is always going to produce this kind of uh, uh, result, this kind of divisiveness. And it's manifested, and you can watch it with people. There are some people in some churches that won't associate with other believers. They won't associate with other churches. They they won't go and, and do anything with anybody else. I, as you know from being uh, observant with me, that I will join with other believers to engage in certain things that we have in common. There are certain core beliefs that we must ha- hold in common as believers one one of it in the in one thing in the, this United States has to do with our understanding of the First Amendment. So I can join with anybody from Roman Catholics to Greek Orthodox to Charismatics if the issue is defending the freedom that we have to proclaim the Word of God, however we understand it, and that is under attack in this country. And there are some Christians 
who won't join forces with any other Christian to defend their very liberties in terms of the First Amendment because this person over here might be a five-point Calvinist and I'm a four-point Calvinist, and since we don't agree on that, we can't agree on anything. And so they're basically uh, shooting themselves in the foot out of their own arrogance. This kind of thing had a historical manifestation in the period known as the Jewish Revolt between 66 and 70. And it was the same kind of arrogance that produced that same kind of divisiveness among the Jews. They were split into numerous minor groups, all kinds of different revolutionary groups and zealot groups. And in fact, according to accounts from from Josephus, uh, who was a uh, Jewish general who had been defeated by the Romans, surrendered to the Romans, and, and, and wrote a history much later on of the Jewish revolt, that he, according to his accounts, the only account we have of the Jewish, Jewish revolt in 66 to 70, that during the final assault on Jerusalem by the Romans, that these Jewish groups were not only fighting the Romans, but they were killing each other at the same time. They were so antagonistic to one another because they didn't agree on every minor point the same that they were fighting each other. And that kind of arrogance and that kind of of divisiveness just leads to self-defeat. And we see a lot of that uh, in the church today. So this, this, this kind of thing was manifested in the early church in Corinth. Now, Paul gets drills down on this issue, why there's uh, the, these... these um, problems in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. One thing we have to understand is we always have people, you have some churches, you have some pastors, and you have some people who think that their church is the only church with truth. They're not going to associate with any other church. Their pastor's never going to go to any meetings with any other pastors because he's better than everybody else. And you've got different kinds of Christians who are superior, some denominations who are superior, and this is all just a sign of, of arrogance, and it shows extremely poor spiritual health. Now, sometimes, Paul says, divisiveness is, good, is a good thing. It's a sign of health. Because if you have somebody who comes into your congregation and they're teaching something erroneous, then you need to identify them as a troublemaker, someone who's causing division, and you need to be able to exclude them. The whole process needs to be done with humility. It needs to be done towards the goal of restoring the other person and helping them to understand uh, what the Scripture says or what the issues are. But it, it should not be done from a hostile viewpoint in the sense that you're just trying to drive the person out because suddenly they've, they're teaching something that's wrong. The point should always be restoration and an attempt to achieve peace and unity. 1 Corinthians 11, 8, Paul, 18, Paul says, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. There was there were all kinds of divisions, all kinds of antagonisms, all kinds of cliques that had developed in the uh, Corinthian church. And in verse 19, he says, for there must be these factions among you. And he uses a term in the Greek that indicates this, this is necessary. You must have this. Because, and he, rec- it, he was recognizing reality that there are going to be people who come in who get wrong ideas, teach wrong things, and that has to be dealt with in order to show those who are right and on target that they are approved in terms of of their their teaching. The word that's translated divisions, usually translated that is schisma, which is where we get our English word schism, somebody who creates division and divisiveness. The word translated factions is the word hierasis. In the Greek, it simply means a sect or a faction or a group. It came to mean heresy as it's brought over into English, but the original Greek word doesn't really have the connotation we have of, of heresy. And then that last, um, that last noun, dokimas, comes from the verb dokimazo, and the focus there is on approval, showing the value of something. So in the midst of this kind of a controversy, 
uh, as you drill down into Scripture, study what the Word says, and come to understand truth, and you might have to exclude somebody who's causing a problem, it, uh, in, it, it improves the quality of the congregation in terms of their understanding of the Word of God. It's a difficult and it's a tough circumstance and situation. Now, the passage that we looked at last time is related to Ephesians 4, uh, 1 through, um, probably 1 through 5, 1 through, 1 through 3 here, that we are, uh, that unity is on the basis of uh, gentleness, it's on the basis of lowliness, long-suffering, and humility, which is indicated by these particular Greek words. I pointed out last time they're brought together in Colossians 3.12, that as the elect of God, Paul says, holy and beloved, put on, this is experiential sanctification or, or what is described as a spiritual life. He's described as putting on a new set of values, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Those are the same words that we find here, that we are to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called, with all lowliness and gentleness. I would translate that, I think it would be better, humility and meekness. If we properly understand it, meekness uh, is really more related to authority orientation. It's not the idea that we often think of as somebody who's just kind of a, a wimp. He just sort of a pushover. Uh, a meek person is somebody who understands who he is, has a solid view of himself in terms of his position in relation to God and his submission to the authority of God. Moses was called the meekest man in the Old Testament. He understood the authority of God and he was subordinate to it, but he made sure that that he stood his ground as he led the Israelites, two and a half to three million of them, and they were rebellious, but he did not yield to them. He was not a soft leader. In Ephesians 4, 4 through 5, as I wrapped up last time, we're told there's, uh, we were called in one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and that word one faith indicates that unity. That's the basis. We don't unify at the expense of doctrine, but on the basis of doctrine. All right, now let's go into the next verse. Verse 8. Paul writes, now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. So he's shifting from talking about the importance of receiving one another, which is grounded on humility. Now, what undergirds what he says here is his understanding of the importance of humility and grace orientation in terms of having unity in the body of Christ. And so his illustration here is going to be Jesus Christ, just as it is in Philippians chapter 2. We'll look at Philippians chapter 2 in just a minute. He says, now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Now that verse starts off, it's not the word now as the New King James translates it. In the Greek, it's the word gar, which indicates he's explaining what he has just said. So verse 8 needs to be understood as an explanation and a further development of why it's important to receive one another. And he says that part of this explanation is to understand Christ and as Christ became a servant to the circumcision. Now, the circumcision, as we'll see, refers to uh, the Jews and Christ in the, in the first advent. But we have to understand something about the terminology that's used here. Uh, Christ is referred to as a servant. This is the noun form, diakonos, where we get our English word deacon. Uh, he, it's not saying that Jesus became a deacon. It's saying that Jesus became a servant. That's the ultimate meaning of that Greek word, is someone who is a servant, someone who ministers or helps someone else. So Paul says that Jesus Christ became a servant at the first advent when Jesus entered into human history. He's the eternal second person of the Trinity. He's fully God. He has all the attributes of God. He's due all the honor and respect of God. He is the eternal creator of the universe. And as Colossians 1, 16 and 17 tells us, he holds together the entire universe. 
And that didn't change when he entered into humanity and he was a baby lying in the manger. He still in his deity held everything together. But he came for a purpose to become a servant. Now, the the verb that is translated become is a word that means to become something you weren't before. So he's entering into human history as a human. He's becoming something he wasn't before. That is, he's adding humanity to his deity, and he is coming for the purpose of being a servant to Israel. The focus here is on Israel and God's covenant to Israel. The the fact that he calls them the, the circumcision takes us back to the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, we have a foreshadowing and a summary of what will become the key elements in God's promise to Abraham. God made an eternal covenant with Abraham. It's described in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, where he said, I will uh, make your name great. I will give you descendants that are more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sand of the, of, of the seashore. I am going to uh, bless you, and those who bless you will I will also bless, and those who curse you I will also curse. And God promised to give them land that was bounded by specific real estate points uh, in the um, in the Middle East, by the Mediterranean, by the brook of Egypt called the Wadi El Arish, which is down in the Sinai. Uh, often people make, make, and it's a whole other topic, I don't want to get distracted on it, but often people have identified, and I have in the past too, there's a lot of uh, issues related to it, because in Genesis uh, 15, 18, God promised to Abraham that he would give him from the river of Egypt. And there's debate over that. The word in the Hebrew that's translated river there is a word that's never used anywhere else in Scripture to d- describe the Nile. The Nile is always described by another Hebrew word, yaor. And in about five other passages in the Old Testament, the southern border, including the prophetic passage in Ezekiel that describes the boundaries of Israel in the uh, millennial kingdom, uh, says that the southern boundary is the brook, the Nahar, not the Nahal, the Nahar, uh, which is a term for the Wadi El Arish. So uh, God gave this specific real estate from the uh, Euphrates to the Wadi El Arish from the Mediterranean over again to the Euphrates. This was a specific piece of real estate. And when God gave this covenant to Abraham, he said the sign of this covenant is circumcision. So when we read this, this emphasis on circumcision, what ought to come to our thinking is that this is a reference to the Abrahamic covenant and to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's coming as a servant to Israel for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. And those promises included the fact that there would be a provision of salvation. Now this word servant in the verb form is picked up in Mark 10, to 45. This is from the Gospel of Mark. The verb here, diakoneo, is the verb form of diakonos. We would say, use, if you serve someone, the word serve there is a verb. Uh, if you serve someone, you're a servant. The noun form is servant. So it's the same way, works the same way in the Greek. And it was Mark wrote of the Lord Jesus Christ, In verses 44 and 45, there was some controversy over who would be the greatest apostle in the kingdom. And Jesus responded by saying, whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. He's making a point that the path to greatness is through humility. And he illustrates it with himself. He says, for even the Son of Man, that is a title for the Messiah used by Jesus of himself, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus Christ came to serve, diakoneo, and so he became a servant to the circumcision. And then we have uh, uh, clearly from other passages that Jesus came, as we'll see in a minute, that Jesus came to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now this passage summarizes some of the concepts that we find in a well-known passage in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. This is a passage talking about humility. 
Remember the, the context of, of Romans 15, 7, and, and verse 7 is talking about humility in receiving one another, not operating on arrogance. Well, in the, the church of Philippi had the same problem with arrogance as most churches do. And in verses 1 through 4, he's talking about the fact that, that uh, what we have in common in Christ. Uh, just a quick summary. In verse 5, he says, Therefore, basically, let this mind, this mentality, this mental attitude be in you. Notice, it's taking us back to the same, uh, to the phrase we saw earlier, being of the same mind and, and same thought. So let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We're all supposed to have the same mental attitude of humility. Now, the illustration is always goes back to Christ. Verse 6 says, who being in the form of God. And there it uses the Greek word morphe, which indicates the essence of God. He is, the, he is in that form, and in Greek, Greek terminology, the word morphe referred to that which were the intrinsic attributes that made something what it was. We would talk about what makes a chair a chair is it has something called chairness. What makes God God is it has something called deity, has the attributes of deity. So if by the, making this statement this way, using this vocabulary, Paul is saying that he was in the form or the essence of God. He had full deity. But he didn't consider it robbery or he didn't consider it something to be grasped after, to be equal with God. Now that, that takes us back to what? What should we be thinking of? Who grasped after deity? Who wanted to be like God? Well, that takes us back to Genesis 2. Adam and Eve, the serpent, came and said, well, the reason God doesn't want you to eat that wonderful-looking piece of fruit is if you do, you'll be just like him. Eve reached out and grabbed that apple. She wanted to be just like God. So she thought that she didn't have deity, but she wanted to have deity. The contrast is Jesus had deity, but he didn't think it was something he needed to grasp after or hold on to in order to assert his equality with God. Verse 7, Paul says, But he made himself of no reputation. The point that he's making here is that Jesus is going to disguise himself. He's going to limit the outward expression of his divine attributes, and he's going to clothe himself in humanity. He's going to be a true human being. He, he's going to be a enter into mortal flesh. Now, sometimes you think, well, Robbie, why are you just emphasizing this again and again? Let me give you a little example, and I'm not going to name any names. But there is a, uh, a young man who is an officer in the Air Force who grew up in a doctrinal church. You would know the pastor and you would know the church. And he should have been pretty squared away. But as he's been in the Air Force, he's gone around to some different, different churches in some different cities. And he has been very divisive because he doesn't hold to an accurate biblical view of kenosis. In fact, he holds to a view... This is why I try to educate you. He holds to a view that in the early church they called docetism. Docetism is a, comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means something appears to be something. It really isn't. It just looks like it. And docetism was the view that Jesus really didn't become a fully, fully uh, human being, a full human being. That Jesus uh, only appeared to be a man. He only appeared to be in flesh. And so this guy has insinuated himself into several churches. He's a guy who's actually been at this church at Schaefer, Schaefer Conferences three or four times. He's insinuated himself in two or three different churches and caused great division. And then he siphons off all the people who are the heavy donors in the church. He manages to get into this congregation, and he, just like Satan, he looks good. He looks like a nice guy. He's very enthusiastic, wants to help the pastor. And I got a call from a pastor just like week who, said, who called me up and said, do you know this guy? He's shown up in my church, and I, I, you know, he he makes himself useful to the pastor, like he's a really good guy. Next thing you know, you're in trouble. 
And so it would just, it, and, and fortunately this pastor who called me said, I've, I've done some research. I've talked to this other pastor. I've talked to another pastor who I didn't even know about where he'd caused problems at that church. And this kind of stuff, he's, he's one of these people that I was just talking about who breaches the unity of the church by teaching false doctrine. What Philippians 2 7 is saying is that Jesus added to his deity the form of a bondservant, a form of a bondservant. And he made himself of no reputation. The idea here is there's a Greek word that's used here it called, that is the word kenosis. And this is a big, big issue. And theologians talk about the problem of kenosis. What, what basically happens is that Jesus is fully divine from eternity past. When he enters into human history, through the virgin conception and virgin birth, he adds to his deity true humanity so that he has two natures, one that's true deity and one that's true humanity, and he's now one person with two natures. He doesn't relinquish his deity. Some people have stated it that way, that he gives up. Some translations uh, communicate that idea, that he gives up his deity. He doesn't give it up. He changes the water into wine. He stills the storm. He does numerous other miracles to indicate he's still fully God. What he's doing is he's not accessing his deity to solve the problems of his humanity. He's living his life in the incarnation as a human being, but there are going to be times when he, as it were, reaches through the firewall between his humanity and his deity, and he will use some of his divine attributes, his omnipotence or his uh, omniscience, in order to make the point and to teach that he is fully God. But he's not using his omnipotence to solve the problems of his humanity because he's showing that that you can, you and I can live the Christian life or ought to be able to on the same basis that he does through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So he's not... I mean, what point is understanding Jesus' temptation if Jesus is just handling temptations by his deity? You know, what encouragement is that for us? We can't do that. We can't follow his example. If his example of humility is based on his divine attributes, well, we're all sunk. We can't do that. No, the point is that he's he is... Uh, exhibiting these characteristics, solving these problems in his humanity by relying upon God, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God, just as we should. But there are other situations and circumstances in his life where he is asserting who he is as the promised and prophesied Messiah of the, of the Old Testament, and so he's going to demonstrate that through these other miracles that are accessing his deity. So it's not that he uh, gives up his deity, but he adds adds uh, humanity. And in verse 8 we read, And he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Now that wasn't that death was not a pleasant death. This was miserable. It was painful. The language that we see in the in the gospels related to what Jesus went through the night he before he went to the cross when he was in the garden of Gethsemane where he is under such physical and emotional distress that he sweated blood this is a this is a reality that a medical condition that is known that when people under certain circumstances and certain kinds of pressure will their, their blood will be forced from the capillaries in their skin uh, through their skin and it will uh, look like they're sweating blood now Jesus is going through em- tremendous emotional distress I don't know if you've ever been in a situation when you've gone through a lot of emotional distress. I've gone through that in times, and usually I don't respond very well in terms of uh, my dependence upon God and letting my sin nature take over. But Jesus never lets the emotional pressure that he's under, facing the misery, knowing all of the horrors that he will have to endure in his humanity the next day, he never lets that uh, control his reactions. He resists that and he trusts in God. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says in the garden in his prayer, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He's completely submissive to the will of the Father in his humanity. So he humbles himself. 
What is humility here? He humbles himself by being obedient to the authority over him. That's what real humility is. You boil it all down. Humility isn't somebody who's self-effacing. It's not somebody who's mild and, and unassertive. Humility is somebody who is oriented to the proper authorities over him and is obedient to them. He humbles himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And there's nothing more miserable. If you really want to get a sense of that, then maybe you ought to Google some of these videos that are out on the Internet related to ISIS crucifixions. And uh, that would be pretty horrible. I don't think I want to watch that. But if you want to get a, a, an understanding of how horrid crucifixion was, it was one of the worst forms of torture and execution ever devised by, by the human mind. And it was designed for, to, to keep a person alive as long as possible and to promote as much pain and torture as possible during that time that they were on the cross. So this is what Jesus did. He became a servant to the circumcision, uh, peritome. This is a, the Greek word circumcision indicating that it's specifically focused on his mission to the Jews as the Messiah and that he is going to confirm through his ministry, which is what we've been studying in Matthew, that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and promises related to providing an eternal solution to sin from, from the Old Testament. In Galatians 3.16, Paul <clears throat> talks about this as he quotes from the Old Testament. So this is another one of those passages that's, that's, uh, that's really interesting to drill down on, but I won't do that tonight. Uh, Paul says, now to Abraham and his seed. See, in the Old Testament, the, in Hebrew, the word seed is a what's called a collective singular. It, the word seed can refer to one or can refer to many. And so the Apostle Paul here is playing off of the singular sense of the word in its use and that it was one seed, not too many seeds, plural, but to one who is Messiah. So Jesus, he is saying, is the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies and promises that were given and that Paul's ministry was, uh, and this confirms that Paul's ministry was also to, to the Jews. And he is talking about that. Jesus became a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm his promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And here he shifts to talking about uh, the Gentiles and who the Gentiles are. Now, this is another Im interesting and, and important little uh, little word to focus on here. He's saying that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, uh, as it as it is written. And the word that is translated Gentile here is the Greek word ethnoi. And the Greek word ethnoi, according to the Bauer Danker. Arnton Gingrich uh, lexicon of the uh, Greek language gives the first meaning of ethnoi as a body of persons united by kinship, culture, or common traditions. It's also translated nation and peoples. But it is also and uh, often and most often just simply translated Gentiles as opposed to Jews, anyone that is non-Jewish. And so here in the New King James Version, uh, we have the statement that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. It's very clear from the context here that we're talking about a contrast between Jews as God's covenant people and Gentiles. Now, what's interesting is he brings out this quote from Psalm uh, 1849, and it's identical. Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22 are identical. Now, 2 Samuel 22 won't be covered until we get to the end of our study of Samuel. But what's interesting is that as we go through Samuel, I'm going to bring in all of the different Psalms that we will cover in their historical context. So, so not all Psalms that David wrote are identified to and linked to a specific situation, but there are many that are, 
And so we'll look at those within their historical context. And this is a psalm that was written near the end of, of David's life. And in, near his conclusion, he says, for this reason I will confess, which means to admit, acknowledge, and it means even in this context to praise. It's ex homologeo, which is an intensified form of the word homologeo, which usually means confess. And here it has that probably the idea, I will praise you, God, among the Gentiles. See, if we translate that nations, it would give a totally and erroneous impression of what that verse is talking about. He's talking about the Gentiles as opposed to as opposed to the Jews. Now in 2 Samuel 22 verse 50 and Psalm 1849, we see the parallel verses there and I'll just focus on the on Psalm 18. They're identical, both chapters are the same uh and, and with a few minor differences, but they're basically the same. And uh, I'll just focus on Psalm 1849, which is a conclusion that we see in the uh, in, in the text. Now, as we look at this, Psalm, Psalm 18 is just a, a fantastic psalm and one of my particular favorite psalms. It begins with a statement of praise to God where the psalmist says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock. And here he uses the Hebrew word selah. In, in some, um, some English translations where we get down here to this word strength that's translated rock by some translations, but they're two different words in the Hebrew. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold, here's a different word for stronghold, and it refers to a, a high and elevated place that becomes a refuge in the heights. That's not in the heights of Houston. That's in the heights in terms of the high places. Houstonians have to understand that distinction. You can't go get refuge in the heights, not anymore. Psalm 18.3, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. Now, this is one of my favorite verses, and it emphasizes seven different metaphors describing God as the one who has protected us. And if we think about this psalm, we need to understand that it's a praise psalm. It's a psalm of thanksgiving, and it's a great pattern if you want to uh, write out a prayer sometime related to how God has has delivered you. And this is a lengthy pouring out of David's soul in gratitude to Yahweh for how God has delivered him throughout his life. It's written near the end of David's life, uh, not long before he dies. And it's uh, in, in it he portrays God in these various forms as a rock, as a fortress, as a deliverer, as a rock, it's a different word. Uh, it's translated strength in this verse, but it has the idea of a stronghold or bulwark, a shield, a horn of salvation, and as a stronghold. So as we look at that, the first word rock, uh, which is uh, selah, indicates being hidden in the cleft of the rock, hiding up in a ridge or back in a crack where the storms or the arrows, nothing can reach you, you're in protection. Then he uses the term, my fortress. This is the Hebrew word, metzadah. Metzadah is where the, the, the fortress gets its name at Masada. And here is a picture, a nice aerial shot of Masada. The group going to Israel will be there in a couple of months. And it's a tremendous fortress that was built there. It wasn't just called Masada. Masada is a, Greek, is a Hebrew word meaning a fortress or fortification that provide uh, defense. And God is our deliverer. He rescues us from times of difficulty. And then the writer goes on to say, my God, my strength. This is a different word used here. And this word indicates something of um, of a fortress or a bulwark, a fortification to hide in. It's a, uh, it's a synonym for metzadah. My strength in whom I will trust. God is the only one who can truly protect us in the midst of the horrors of life. He is our stronghold, 
he's a shield, so he protects us from whatever comes our way. He's the horn of my salvation. An animal's horn was thought to be the place of their strength and their power. So this metaphor, the horn of something, indicates power and strength. And so God is the source of our salvation. He's the power and strength of our salvation. And then he is our stronghold, a refuge in the heights. Now, he's going to come to the end of the passage, and we'll come back to that next time where he concludes this great psalm. You ought to read Psalm 18 between now and next week. Great promises there, great verses uh, to memorize. But the point that Paul is going to be getting at here is that it talks about that, that, that at the end, David calls upon the Gentiles also to, that he's going to praise God's name even among the Gentiles. He envisions a time in the future when the Jews and Gentiles will together glorify God. And so that's important to, to understand that term, and we'll get there uh, next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, and may we uh, continue to reflect upon humility, the importance of humility in our lives, uh, not being divisive, not giving in to arrogance in our lives, and, of course, submitting to your authority in all areas. May we be reminded of the importance of humbling ourselves under your mighty hand and, and orienting ourselves to you as our soul, our only protection, our defense, our fortress, our shield, that you and you alone provide protection in the midst of the devil's world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.